Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, for this morning to the book of Romans and the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8, as we are on a, uh, a brief uh, pit stop from our study through the Gospel of Luke over this end of the year season and beginning of next year. Uh, it was my desire to, uh, to reframe the way that we are thinking about the uh, upcoming year. And uh, I thought that this would be an appropriate place to go and to look and to help us think about the way that we ought to think about the year ahead. And as it turns out, we're going to need a couple of Sundays to do this. So we'll be in Romans chapter 8 this morning in verses 26 through 30. And then next week in verses 31 to 39. As we consider what God is doing in the world... And more importantly, in our own lives as believers. So Romans 8, verse 26, we'll read through verse 30. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified and these whom he justified, he also glorified. We often remark that things don't seem right in the world. That things seem like they're going badly. That there's a lot of sin. That there's a lot of chaos. A lot of uncertainty in the world around us. And that things don't seem right accordingly in our lives. There are hardships that we don't want. Unpleasant things that we have to encounter. Surprises around Every corner. And when we say these things, it's true. These things do exist. There are uncertainties. There are unpleasant things happening. There is sin in the world abundantly. Things are not right in the world. And the Apostle Paul here acknowledges that head on. He says we should not try to stay away from that fact. Instead, we should admit and we should say... Things are not right in the world. Things are not the way that they should be. And this is why he has written the passage that is right before the one that we're considering this morning. I want to just read this for you as well as we think about what it means for the world to be in its current condition. Verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This is the state of the world. Always has been since the fall, always will be until Jesus returns. The things that we see in this world are just the most recent version of a world that is groaning, of creation being subjected to futility. And yet they are real issues and they are real things. And these present real hardships and difficulties in our lives as believers. And again, the Apostle Paul tackles these things head on and says... Things are not as they should be, and that makes your life hard in many real ways. There are a lot of things to be thankful for in life, but there are a lot of things that are difficult. We know this. We don't always know what they're going to be, but we know that they exist. And so as we look at the year ahead, I'd like for you to understand what's happening when those things are going on. What is happening when you think about what has taken place over the past year or two years or decade or whatever it might be, where you say, I don't like how this has gone? And what is happening if 
in this coming year or in the future, you encounter things where you say, this is hard. I don't like what's going on. This passage addresses this issue. How is it that we as Christians can smile, in a sense, at every circumstance? How can we be comforted even when we don't know the future or when the future comes and we don't like it? How can we rejoice no matter what the hardships may be? Why do we know that every circumstance is not just the product of happenstance or not as bad as it seems on the surface, but instead that every circumstance is for our good? That's because of what this passage teaches us. And it tells us that the believer's good is being brought about in every single event that happens. Every circumstance, every situation, and not only the good ones that we can see, but even the sufferings and the adversity that we encounter. And we can know this for certain according to this text. We can know that things are at work for our good in every circumstance because this passage tells us of two divine activities. Two divine activities. And we'll begin by looking at verse 26 and 27, which tells us about the first. Namely, the effectual prayers of the Spirit. The effectual prayers of the Spirit. And so Paul begins and says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. This Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is offering prayers, effectual prayers. And Paul speaks of this as in the same way. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly the same way as what he's referring to, but he, he uses a word which uh, is often rendered, and I think here would be good to render, uh, likewise. Meaning that he's telling us something else that the Spirit does. He has already said in verse 2 of this chapter that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Then he says in verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit helps us overcome sin. The spirit gives us assurance of salvation as he testifies that we belong to God. And now the spirit helps us in another way. The Holy Spirit helps us by praying on our behalf. Now, Paul refers to the Spirit's help as something that comes to us and addresses our weakness. The Spirit doesn't come and take over something that is good in us, but he addresses something that is weak about us, and he helps our weakness. He helps our weakness. And the language says not so much that he helps us, but that he helps our weakness, which puts the focus on the fact that we are, in fact, very weak. Now, some of us don't want to admit this often, and we like to think that we have everything together and we want to do everything ourselves, but the reality is that we are weak. We have a weakness. And it may feel like this to you in general. You feel weak. You feel like you can't do anything. You feel like you can never get anything done. You feel helpless. You feel like you don't know what's happening, what's going on. But there's one specific weakness that he has in mind. And what does he say that that is? He says, we do not know how to pray as we should. We don't know how to pray as we should. Now, this is a pretty important deficiency, isn't it? If you are supposed to pray as a Christian, and this is supposed to be a big part of your life, and if you're supposed to go to God for things when you're in trouble, and when things are hard, and when things are uncertain, but you don't know how to pray as you should, this presents a major issue that needs to be addressed. So what does Paul mean when he says, we don't know how to pray as we should? Now, he is not telling us here that we lack a method for prayer. We have a method for prayer. We have many methods for prayer. We have them modeled in scripture. Jesus answers his disciples and tells them how to pray in response to a question about that specific thing. We have examples of prayer. We have priorities laid out when people such as Moses or David or the apostle Paul lead us in prayer or pray and report their prayers on behalf of other people. Uh, we know who we are supposed to pray to. We even know the right posture of the heart. We're supposed to pray with humility and earnestness and without ceasing. We know a lot about prayer, maybe more than almost any other thing that we're supposed to do as Christians. So when he says we don't know how to pray as we should, if we don't know how to pray, then we don't know how to do anything. But what does he mean? What is it that we don't know? Well, the reality is that we don't know most of anything. We don't know almost any percentage of all that there is to know in the entire universe. 
or what would go on behind the scenes or what the possible contingencies are for our lives or what are the things taking place in the world right now that would affect us years down the road. We don't know any of those things. We know almost nothing. Now, in our lives, we often try to cover our bases. We prepare for emergencies. I wonder what kind of emergency things that you have laid out. Do you have fire extinguishers? Do you know who to call if there's an emergency of some kind? Do you have an emergency pickup person? If your kids need to be picked up, what does this look like? Uh, we plan for every kind of contingency. We've developed insurance of almost every kind in case disaster strikes. We often look at the future and say, what opportunities could arise or what threats do I need to prepare against? And in our society, we've become pretty skilled at this. But the reality is no one is ever going to be able to prepare for all of the possibilities of what could happen. And nobody definitely will be able to predict all of the possibilities that would happen. There's just too much to know. And when he says that the Spirit helps us because we don't know how to pray as we should... This is what it's like. This is what the will of God and the workings of God are like. We are human creatures. We are finite. We are limited. And this is especially so in our knowledge. And we as human beings simply cannot know all that might potentially come to pass. We cannot know all that is happening in the world. And we can't know all the possible ways that those things could be used to accomplish God's purposes for us. And so we lack not so much a method, we lack not instructions for how to pray or just simply to pray at all, but we lack a certain kind of content about what we should pray about and what we should be asking for. And so we have a weakness, and thankfully, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us helps us with that very thing. Because Paul says he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. He helps our weakness, and he does so specifically by interceding for us. Interceding means to basically step in on behalf of someone else. And we noted here that the Spirit does this through praying for us. He intercedes for us constantly, all the time. He intercedes on our behalf for us who are Christians. And I wonder if you ever stop and remember, when you have no idea what to do with the situation that you're in, and you say, I don't even know what to ask for. You're, you're a step beyond saying, I don't know what to do, God. You don't even know all that you should ask for. And I wonder if you remember that the Holy Spirit is praying for you at that moment on your behalf. We need to recall the kindness and the benevolence of God the Holy Spirit toward us. He is gracious and he is a gift from God, quite literally. And he helps us in every moment of our lives in ways that we would never perceive if a passage like this was not here telling us that he's acting behind the scenes. So the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And what we're going to find in this context is that what he's praying for is whatever is necessary to carry out the sovereign purpose of God for us and for our good, for our eternal good. And so the situation is this. We're finite, and God has not told us everything that we need to know. And if he told us everything we needed to know, we still wouldn't really be able to grasp it. Um, and so he gives us the Holy Spirit, and one of the Holy Spirit's actions in us is to pray on our behalf. We're finite, we're limited, we can't take care of this ourselves. And the great thing about this is it's okay for us to be this way. We should be humble before God and say, I will never be able to understand everything that I need to know in order to pray as I should for my own perfect holiness and future glory. This is okay because we're not God, but God the Holy Spirit dwells in believers in order to do this. And so it's okay for us to be finite in this way and to be limited in this way. We don't have to be frustrated by this. And the, the wonderful thing is that we have someone who can help. So the Holy Spirit dwells in us in order to do this. So when we don't know exactly what to pray for, because we truly don't know what's best, there are three things that we should do. We should pray for everything that Scripture lays out, that we will be obedient to God's revealed will. We should pray for wisdom, where there is no specific instruction, that God would make us wise and do what we ought to do, that he would help us to, to do what is best in any circumstance. And then, to take care of the rest, we should simply trust that the Holy Spirit prays 
on our behalf. He prays on our behalf. Now, the Holy Spirit prays, and he has a certain unique kind of intercession for us, not only because he is doing it from indwelling within us, not only because he is God praying to God, God the Holy Spirit, but because they're offered, Paul says, with groanings too deep for words. Too deep for words. The word here actually is one word which simply means unexpressed or wordless. Uh, It comes from a word family which means unable to speak, mute. This then is a certain type of prayer that is uh, even less understandable than what some people might bring to this uh, and say and even make the argument is a certain type of, quote, praying in tongues. They look at this and they say, well, there are no words and certain people today will uh, go to God in a type of language that doesn't seem to have words either. And so this must be what Paul is talking about here. And they introduce something totally foreign to the context. In the scripture, tongues were always verbal. They were always spoken. They contained words, although words that were understood in a different language. But here, this says literally that the words are not spoken. They're groanings without words at all. And there's even precedent for this, not just in the Bible, but in this very passage. Because in verse 22, he said, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, surely understanding that the creation itself is also not speaking words as it groans, nor then does the Holy Spirit. So he intercedes for us, and he is groaning, but there are no words. Now note here that there is a, when it comes to the, prog- to the uh, groanings, that there is a progression. There's a progression. In verses 19 to 22, which I read earlier, we find that creation is groaning and waiting eagerly for future glory. This is the content of what creation sort of wants if uh, it's being personalized. Then in verse 23, we find that we as believers groan and wait eagerly for future glory. It says not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So you have creation groaning, and then you have believers groaning. And then in verse 26, the Holy Spirit joins in groaning. In his case, not out of some type of intrinsic weakness, but rather because he has the same desire that we would come out of this situation that we're in, the suffering and the hardships, into, as he says, the freedom of the glory of the children of God, the freedom of the sons of God. So then here he steps in and he prays, not because he needs something, but because he wants something. And he wants something for us. He does this because he cares for us. So what does it mean then that the Spirit groans? After all of this, after understanding we, we don't know how to pray as we should, the Spirit prays for us, what does this look like? Well, we should be praying, and it's assumed that we will be, but as we pray, alongside us and from within us, the Holy Spirit prays as well. When we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, and we act, and the Holy Spirit acts as well. And he changes who we are, and he influences who we are, but he doesn't take over our spirit. In that, we don't just have our own individual human spirit sort of subsumed and then erased and merged with the Holy Spirit. We don't lose our human spirit. Rather, our, our spirit, our inner man, remains alongside, if you will, the Holy Spirit. And so if you look in verse 16, you find uh, that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We have a spirit in verse 15 that cries out, Abba, Father, and then the Holy Spirit testifies alongside that. So in us, we have our human spirit and we have the Holy Spirit. And so in the same way, we pray and the Holy Spirit who does influence us and transform us at the same time prays and intercedes alongside us. And he makes sure that what is needed to be expressed to God is expressed. say, well, how does that work if there are no words? Well, I'm glad you asked because verse 27 tells us, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. This is to say that the Holy Spirit not only helps our weakness, intercedes for us, but that he is understood by the Father. 
he is understood by the Father. The Father knows what the Spirit is asking. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The Spirit has a mind, even a mindset. Uh, He has a mind, to put it very carefully, and I do want to be careful with this, he has both a mind of his own and yet not a mind of his own. A mind of his own, but not a mind of his own, meaning he is his own person, distinct from the Father with regard to his person. He is completely and fully God, but he is distinct from the Father and distinct from the Son as to his person. Yet he is not his own person, so to speak, in the way that we often use the phrase, where we talk about someone having an independent or a wild streak or not being influenced or held under the authority of someone else. He doesn't have a desire, the Holy Spirit, to just do his own thing. And he doesn't come into conflict with the Father and the Son. So he has his own mind as his own person, but he is not independent or at odds with the Father or the Son. So then, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit acts according to his own real will. And Hebrews 2 verse 4 says that God testified by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 tells us that the Spirit distributes gifts to people individually just as he wills. But on the other hand, his will is always in alignment with that of the Father and the Son. And so it is with his prayers. Because Paul tells us he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. According to the will of God. How does the Father know the mind of the Spirit then? Well, he knows everything. There is an intertrinitarian communication because they are, they are one God. Uh, he, Paul says, searches the hearts, which tells us that he knows everything. So he knows what we want and what we're asking for even before we say it. David says, before there's a word even on my tongue, O Lord, you know it. But there's another reason Paul gives, which is that the things the Spirit is asking for on our behalf are exactly what God the Father already wants to do. They are already the will of God. The Spirit prays on our behalf for what is exactly in line with God's intent for us, with his purposes for us as Christians. So this is what he prays. He prays for what is according to the will of God, according to God's decree. The context is things that we do not know, which means that it goes beyond simply praying that we would be obedient to what has been revealed, beyond what can be picked up and looked at in the Bible. It's more than that. It is what God intends to do for all of us individually. He prays according to the will of God. So we don't know. We don't have all the information. We don't have even uh, the vast majority of the information. We have just a sliver. We have only what God has revealed, and we have only what we can see on the surface. But the Spirit prays according to everything that God wills and that God desires for us. We don't have to know. And by the way, none of this is ever revealed to us. We only see it when it happens. But the Spirit knows, and the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. So then, he says that these groanings are too deep for words. This is no problem because God already knows what the Spirit wants, because the Spirit wants what the Father wants. And so when he intercedes for us, then he intercedes according to what is God's design. So then as we consider uh, the Spirit's prayers on our behalf, what should we do? What should we do with this? Well, we should recognize that our lack of knowledge about how to pray doesn't mean that we know nothing. Uh, We should act according to what we do know, according to God's revealed will. Um, It also doesn't mean that we should not pray. Paul says we don't know how to pray as we should, but we do pray and we know how to pray. And Paul himself prays in this very letter. So he models for us and instructs us that we should definitely be praying, even if we don't know how to pray to the same level as the Holy Spirit does. This isn't an excuse to just sit back and let the Holy Spirit take over. Instead, we should be praying alongside the Holy Spirit. We also find that God doesn't criticize us for not knowing how to pray as we should. We go to prayer and say, well, I don't even know what to ask for, or my prayers are so feeble, or I can't predict the future. How can I pray about this thing? You may not be able to pray effectively about certain things in certain ways, but you can pray according to what you know. You can pray according to what the Bible says. You can pray according to all of God's revealed will in his word, and God does not 
chastise you for not knowing any more than that. He doesn't fail to heed your prayers because you can't peer into his secret, unrevealed will of decree and pray according to that. He doesn't ask that of you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Even if we're very, very sanctified, the omniscient Holy Spirit is going to do an infinitely better job praying for us in these matters than we will. And so we pray, but he fills in the gap. So understand then, as you suffer, as you have a hardship, or even as you go through prosperity, what this tells us is that we have someone working for us, in us, who is making sure that everything that we need is being asked for and that God the Father will hear that prayer. So the Spirit prays on our behalf. And he does so because of what does Paul say in verse 26? We don't know how to pray as we should. The Spirit prays for us because of what we don't know. Because of what we don't know. But at the same time, Paul wants us to lean our hope on something now that we do know. Something that we do, in fact, know. And something that we can be very, very sure of. And that is the other divine activity that helps us know that God is bringing about good in every circumstance. Which is the eternal purpose of the Father. The eternal purpose of the Father. We can be comforted that God is working good in every circumstance because of the effectual prayers of the Spirit, but also because of the eternal purpose of the Father. And verses 28 through 30 tells us about this. The Apostle Paul says, And we know. And we know. Tomorrow, of course, is the first day of the year. And maybe you have some plans. And maybe you have some goals, and maybe you have some resolutions, and maybe you have things mapped out on a calendar. But do you know for a fact that any of them will take place? Of course not. Not for absolute certain. But this verse tells us that there is something that we know with absolute certainty. We know that God causes all things together to work together for good to those who love God. We know that God, whatever happens, is in control of it all. We know that he's not surprised by any of it. And perhaps most directly vital to our encouragement, we know that he has a good purpose for everything that will happen in the upcoming year. Everything that happens is for the Christian's good, no matter how confusing or even how painful it might be. And so we find God's eternal purpose. And in this eternal purpose, we find, first of all, his working of all things for our good. His working of all things for our good. <clears throat> God causes all things to work together for good. And before we get too far in, I want to note this uh, important point, which is the beneficiaries of this work. Who benefits from God working all things together? Well, he does this, he says, for his people. For his people. To those he calls them who love God. A rare statement in the Bible to say and to affirm that someone actually loves God. Not because there is no one who loves God. Not because it is unusual for believers to love God. In fact, he defines them in this way. He calls them, in essence, those who love God. Believers are those who love God. Um, but it's rare because the emphasis in Scripture so often is on the other direction. And we looked at this last week in 1 John 4 where it says not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We should not casually throw around the idea of loving God, especially when in comparison to God's love for us as Christians, our love for him is very feeble. But we do in reality, if we are believers, love God. That is a defining and non-negotiable characteristic. And the people that he refers to here as those who love God are the same people that's been before us the whole time. Verse 27, he refers to the saints, the holy ones, God's people. And here they are referred to as those who love God. These are the ones who receive the benefits of God working together all things for good. And we must be careful here to make sure that we don't assume our way into a deception about God's attitude toward us. 
Too many times people think of God as good and loving, which he is, but then they assume because he is good and loving and they exist in his universe that they're going to get all the same benefits as anyone else. And they think this all the more when they hear about the work of Christ. And they think, well, Jesus died, and that shows all the more sort of the personal and caring nature and the fact that God would do something in this world and that he's not off at a distance and maybe my family is this way, and my, uh, it's just the family tradition that we are all just Christians, and we all get all these benefits. But here he wants to make sure that you understand that it is for those who love God. And you need to ask yourself if that describes you. Do you love God? Do you love God? And I'm not saying that you love God to the same degree that God has loved you. That would be impossible. And it's not saying that you love God constantly with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. But do you fit the description? Do you love God? Are you someone whose heart has been changed? Or are you simply in this world presuming on the love of God for yourself? We know that this happens for those who love God. Those who, as we'll see more on in a moment, are called according to his purpose. Now, this takes place then. God works all things together for good for his people. And then he does this, Paul says, in our adversity. In our adversity. And he has to point out this fact that all things work together for good because we're so inclined to see the things that happen to us as not good. And in one sense, they aren't good. They're really, really bad. As I said at the beginning, this world is not the way that it should be. There are things happening in your life that are not good in and of themselves. But God takes those things and he uses them for good. That's the point. Now, God uses all things together. He works all things, including the good things, together for our good. So he's not totally excluding that here. But at the same time, in this passage, there is a certain set of those things, a subset of everything that happens in the world that, that he is emphasizing and that he's been talking about for a lot of this chapter. Sufferings, adversity, and what we would view as unpleasant circumstances. That is the context of the all things, verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him. <clears throat> Creation, he tells us, groans, and we groan because of the fall of man and the curse upon creation. And so the focus is on bad things, bad circumstances, hardships that happen to you. Do you have any of those? Have you had any of those? What, what are the bad things in your life? The evil things that occur or are occurring even now, even at this moment that are hard to get your mind off of. What suffering have you faced? What pain and loss have you gone through? What sources of fear and worry, unpleasant situations? Where, what are the bad things in your life? Now ask yourself, do I know those things and look at them and see them? And that's where I stop. Or... Do I believe that God rules over those things? And then do I believe that God has ordained them in my life? And then do I believe that they're being used by him to bring about my good? Do I actually believe this? And not just that they're kind of in the way or on the side and God clears them out to get to our good, but that he actually utilizes these things, every one of them, to accomplish exactly what is perfectly best for you. Do you believe this? Joseph did, after spending years being enslaved and imprisoned, taken away from his family. His brother sold him into slavery in Egypt. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, he's, <coughs> excuse me, he says, uh, As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. And so one commentator says, about Paul's words in Romans 8, 28, quote, he now draws this conclusion from what had been said that so far are the troubles of this life from hindering our salvation that, on the contrary, they are helps to it. They are helps to it. These things, the all things, the sufferings, the hardships, the unpleasantries, all of that, these things are not in God's way of doing what he wants in our life. Instead, they're actually the things that he uses. And if he didn't need them, in a sense, they would not be in your life. God does this then in our adversity 
And he does it through his sovereignty. He says, God causes all things to work together for good. Consider for a moment the absolute control of Almighty God. This is a statement that Paul makes uh, almost in passing. He takes this part for granted because he's focused on what he's using them for. But we shouldn't miss the fact that God has the ability to work all things for good. He rules over all things from the biggest down to the smallest. He rules over every single action, every single item, everything visible or invisible in the entire universe. Everything is under his sovereign control. The only way that he could actually use them to work together for our good as believers is if he were in control of them. And Paul says he is. So he does this through his sovereignty. He also does this um, from his benevolence, from his benevolence, his goodwill, his grace, and his kindness. We need to understand God's sovereignty over these things, but too often sovereignty is just spoken of in isolated terms. God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. But this is not the cold, dark hand of providence or of an unfeeling, uncaring God. This plan and this purpose that God has for us is not mechanical and impersonal. God brings about all of these things upon our life because he deeply cares about us and he does so at every moment. And he knows that even though it hurts and even though it's hard and even though if it were left up to us or if we were given a choice, we wouldn't do it and we would probably complain and often we do anyway, that he is doing what is best for us. God is using his almighty hand, not out of indifference, certainly not out of hostility, but Paul says, for good. He is using it for good. Uh, it is hard to describe how good this good is because we have not yet experienced it. And unfortunately, there are too many people who miss the point of this verse, not because they make it say too much, but because their, uh, the horizon for their returns is too short. They think that God works all things for good. And what they mean by that is that you're going through a hard situation right now, but in a few days or a few months or maybe a few years, if you just kind of push through it, then God's going to bring about something better in your life. And that's why he's doing this. It's almost like going through a kind of metamorphosis and shedding that old version of yourself so that the new version in this life becomes better. But well, it may be true that God does improve your circumstances in his sovereignty through the hardships that you undergo now. That can happen. It does happen sometimes. And where, you, where it does, then we should be grateful to God. But Romans 8.28 is not God using the hard times in this life to make things better in this life. That's not what Paul is talking about, although that may turn out to be true in some ways. What he's talking about is the entirety of God's work for us from beginning to end, culminating what verse 30 refers to as our glorification. He is talking about our eternal good, a good that we may never see this side of glory. This is what he's referring to. He works all things together for good. And believers are able to trust God and to be confident in even the worst of apparent circumstances because God not only is almighty and God not only knows everything and knows what to do, but also because God intends nothing but good for us. And not only does he intend it, but because of his power and his wisdom, he's able to bring it about. So this is not your friend who wants to help and who can't, but this is the God who wants to help and knows exactly what to do and is able to do it perfectly. So he intends to work for our good, not for our bad. Why does he do this? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. He loves his people. And there is a distinct difference in the way that he uses circumstances, the circumstances that seemingly everyone goes through, the sufferings that even unbelieving people go through. There's a distinction between the way he uses it in their lives and the way he uses it for us, the ones that he has loved, the ones who love him in return. And he uses it for our eternal good. Maybe some hard things you're going through right now. Um, what are you going through? God is using it for your good. What are you afraid of that you're fearful of happening in the upcoming year or season? That if it came, would be something good that God brought into your life that he would use for good. And maybe you're anxious about it. But here he says God uses it for good. All of this because... One more point from this idea of God working all things together, that he works them, Paul says, according to his plan. 
according to his plan. Those who were called according to his purpose. The calling, as we'll see in a moment, is not actually the first stop on the line. When he calls a Christian to salvation and draws them to himself, he's not telling them, time for us to start something together. What he's saying is, hop on board, because we're going somewhere. We are stepping in as Christians, Paul says, into the middle of a story, into the middle of something that God has already been working in our lives. Have you ever watched a movie, but you didn't start it until, you know, halfway through or part of the way through? You just maybe you wandered in and, you know, you're watching it or you got there late at the theater and you spend the whole time just, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. I don't understand what's going on. And you're asking questions and probably, you know, the people around you are getting a little bit annoyed. You know, just watch the movie. Just watch the movie. Um, it would make a lot more sense if you had seen the whole thing from the beginning. And sometimes the very beginning sets up the entire thing. Well, when we understand what God has been doing and the purpose that he called us with, then everything that God is doing in the world makes so much more sense. Not that we can peg and say, you know, I know why God did this thing. Well, it's because he's trying to accomplish that. We overestimate our ability to be able to peg the one-to-one relationship of exactly how God uses things. And more than that, the why of what he brought something into your life for. But we can understand in a more general sense, we can make more sense of the hardships that happen in our lives when we know that God is doing something. So when we know what God has been up to with us long before he ever called us, when we know that he has a purpose, then his present work in our lives and his future work in our lives, even the bad things, make a lot more sense. The way that God uses adversities in our lives makes a lot more sense. And even what it looks like for good to come about in our life makes a lot more sense when we don't simply presume that God jumped into our life here and now and just wants to make it a little better. God works according to to plan and he brings about everything he exercises these things he works according to his purpose and i want you to consider and really consider before we briefly look at the what verses 29 and 30 say uh, i want you to consider do you believe that everything that has happened to you in this past year or this past decade or pick your time frame do you really believe that that is for your good i mean do you believe that god intentionally brought all of those things into your life Do you believe that? And do you believe that that is true no matter how bad it's been? Some of you have suffered a lot this year, gone through a lot. And um, you might even anticipate more suffering to come. But do you know and remember that whatever God is bringing into your life is for your good? This is what he says. God loves his people and he brings about what is best for them through his sovereign and wise and loving care. He says those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Well, he tells us in verses 28 through 30. And this is the execution of our plan, of the plan for our salvation. We'll walk through the five elements here of what he calls the golden chain, or what we, what people call the golden chain, the order of salvation, um, which doesn't include everything that God does in our salvation, but it does hit many of the major points. So he tells us about the execution of the plan for our salvation. Not just the purpose, not just the plan, but the execution of it. Now, there are some difficult and even controversial things here that we don't have time to explore in tremendous detail. But I hope you'll remember that Paul intends these truths to be comfort in the midst of adversity. There's certainly not just a point merely for theological accuracy, though we need to get them right because God cares that we do and because that's going to help us be more comforted if we understand them properly. But we should look at them and say, God intends these and Paul intends these for our comfort. He starts with foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreknew. And there, the question immediately arises of what this word means. Uh, and in particular, the distinction between knowing facts and having a personal knowledge of an individual, of someone else. Facts versus personal knowledge. It is possible to know facts and even to foreknow facts. 2 Peter 3.17 uses this exact word in that way. He says, knowing this beforehand. This word can be used to describe the knowledge of something, of some fact, of some situation. But that's not the way the word is always used or even mostly used in the New Testament and especially not here because it doesn't say that he knew facts or that he foresaw activity of some kind. Rather, it says he foreknew people. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreknew. Sometimes 
there are people who have a certain theological view about divine foreknowledge and election and predestination and so on. And they come to this verse and this word and they'll often unwittingly add a concept that's not actually here in this verse. And they'll read this verse as if it says, those whom he foreknew would believe. They add the action as if the action of believing is the object of the knowledge. But that's not what this verse says. It doesn't speak about an action. Rather, it speaks about knowing people, foreknowing people. It doesn't say those whom he foreknew would do something. It says those whom he foreknew. In other words, this is not God looking into the future and observing an action that has not happened yet. Rather, this is God knowing people before they exist. This is knowing them, having a relationship with them before it takes place. Just like what we find in other places, such as Jeremiah 1.5, where God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. The emphasis is this, without respect to any activity on the part of the person selected or known, God knew them before they existed and appointed them to something. This is why Paul is going to go on to say in Romans 9 verses 11 uh, or, and 12, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. This is emphatic over and over again. And the reason he's talking about this, about something happening beforehand, is to rule out any consideration of our response to God as the determining factor in God's foreknowledge of us. To put it another way, God is quite capable, as some would say, of looking down the corridors of time to see what we would do. But Paul speaks of God knowing us without respect to what we would do later in that corridor of time. This then isn't a prognostication or a prediction or even a glimpse into the future. Rather, it is a relationship with someone ahead of time. If you are a Christian, God has always, in one sense, known you. Now, in time and space and history... We have to come to know him. And in fact, we have to become known by him. Galatians 4, 9 tells us this. Now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. He speaks of this as happening in history. This has to take place. Nonetheless, at the same time as we have to have that real experience of coming to know God and of God coming to know us in that way, God does foreknow people. He knows us in a certain way ahead of time. And on this basis... He then does the next action. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestination, the language makes people uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it is thoroughly biblical. Ephesians 1.11 says that we've been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. What's interesting is that predestination doesn't always refer to the exact same thing that we assume it does. Often we just think of it as predestined to believe or to become a Christian. But usually when God uses predestination, he is actually referring to something that extends way past that, all the way to the end of being conformed, even as he says in this verse, to Christ, of perfection. He predestined us, he says, to become conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. He planned and appointed that we would become like Jesus so that Jesus would have the reward of people who are like him. This is for our benefit that we would get to be like Christ and we're becoming like him now but not as much as we will one day when we see him and he gets to have all of these people who become like him that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he foreknew he also predestined. Those whom he predestined verse 30 tells us he also called. This is our calling. This is where the work begins in time and space. When a soul is brought to salvation and God not only invites, but also brings someone to salvation. God called them. God calls them to salvation. Our will is involved as we respond and believe, but God made sure that it occurred because God knew us and predestined us to something and he was not going to let that purpose fail. We responded, but that's not Paul's focus here. It's on the divine side because he wants us to be secure in understanding what God is doing in our lives. Those whom he called, Paul says, he also justified. 
He declared us righteous. He justified us before God. He gave us a new legal standing, not something that we had to work for or earn or wait for or get in part or in stages, not something that we do according to the law, not something that is only in part and we have to make up the rest, but rather something that takes place right now in full, freely, by God's grace, in Christ alone, apart from anything that we do. We respond and believe the gospel as God calls us And we are justified. Our sins are taken away. And we stand righteous before God forever. God executes his plan in our lives. And then he looks ahead. And he does something amazing here. Because not only does God know people before they come into existence. But he also guarantees something to such a degree that he speaks of it in this way. Those whom he justified he also glorified. Now what strikes you as odd about that word? Are any of you glorified yet? I don't think so. I certainly am not, and I don't think any of us would be so bold as to make that claim. Glorification, where everything is changed in a believer's life, when Christ returns, when all things are made new, no more sin, no more corruption, no more mortality. Everything is perfect. This glorification takes place, and he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. The reason why this is so amazing is because he speaks in the past tense about something that hasn't happened yet. And this doesn't tell us that we are misperceiving the way that time works. What this tells us is it is so certain that he speaks of it as if it has already taken place. This will most certainly happen. Our future glory. Our future glory. By the way, if a person receives any of these benefits, he receives them all. All the people that get any of this get all of this. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This means that anyone who is Uh, has been called was in fact predestined you don't have to worry about whether you were chosen anyone who called he calls will be glorified you're eternally secure we can rest our hope in this we need to persevere but God is not making us earn our way our calling is the guarantee of our glory so what does Paul say about this we know these things we know these things and I want to encourage you as we enter into a new year that there are many things that you might plan to do Many actions you might plan to take, and many of those are good things, that there are resolutions and plans and goals and disciplines and so on. And none of those things, if they're according to God's word, if they fit within what the Bible describes or commands or even allows, these can be good things. But one thing that we should also do as we go forward into a new year is to know. We need to know what God is doing in our lives in every circumstance, that God is not just going to take care of the hard things one day, but that he is using them here and now in our lives every moment in order to bring about perfection and future glory in us who belong to Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your care for us. We praise you for your ability to carry this out. And we ask that you might help us to not forget, but to constantly remember your goodness and your kindness toward us in all things that come into our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.